0: Listening to That'll Preach, this is Brian, and uh, I've got a special uh, co-host today. We don't have Paul with us, but we have the second best thing, sort of the, the B-Squad or the C-Squad. We have Justin Wiberly. He's a good friend of ours, and uh, he's a really thoughtful dude. And through Justin, I got to meet uh, this wonderful group of guys, the Reformed Brotherhood, and he introduced me to the guy we're actually going to be talking to today, Tony Arsenal which is a great last name, <laughs> much more manly than Wibberly. Yeah. I'm sorry to say Nobody ever gets Wiberly correct. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, me and Justin, we're going to just have a, a, a chat with Tony. And Tony, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate yeah, it.
1: Yeah, anytime. Yeah, glad to be here.
0: Um, now, I I heard from Justin that you're actually, you're a Presbyterian, died in the wool Presbyterian, but you are at a Reformed Baptist church. Do, do you uh, know that you are... Uh, They do. Yeah. And
1: it's actually not even a Reformed Baptist church. It's kind of an independent Calvinist, Calvinistic sort of community church. Uh, And actually I'm an elder at the church uh, and I'm a Presbyterian.
0: So, yeah, I mean,
1: I don't know that the congregation like widely knows or cares all that much about my particular views. Um, I think we focus on the gospel and um, yeah. I mean, I think people, people aren't surprised when they find out. But the church is really focused on the scriptures and the gospel and and just kind of day in, day out ministry. So um, it's not as though those things are unimportant to us, but they, they don't take the center stage uh, in a way that would prevent me from being a, a fruitful part of the congregation.
0: Oh, that's great. I mean, like, well, you know, right before this, you were saying you're going to grab a beer and I'm like, ah, this man is a <laughs> Presbyterian. This man is reformed. To the core. I was this close to bringing a beer with me, but I didn't. Ended up it's all good. That. But you, you said you're an elder, so are you bi-vocationally? Uh- like, so I'm a, I'm
1: or? I'm an an elder so at our church we have um there's the pastor who is also an elder and then our constitution provides for uh, right now just one additional elder so I'm not in vocational ministry um I'm more of a lay elder although I I am licensed to preach by the church um so I do fill the pulpit from time to time um and I do maybe a little bit more um a little bit more than the average elder at this church has done in the past, just because of my background in training, um, but it's a very small church. We live in rural New Hampshire. we have ten members so um it's a it's a really good, faithful group of saints that just love Jesus and love each other so it's it's a joy to to work with them and to serve them and to um, the times that I get to step into the pulpit are always always just a really sweet blessing for me to to
0: be able to share god's word with these people that's awesome. It's great to hear and uh even though they're wrong. <laughs> about a bunch of things and you love them. And that's the great thing that we, you know, that's, that's, it's, that's the great kind of ecumenical spirit, you know, that I think is important. But um, yeah, I mean, man, I, so Reformed Brotherhood, I mean, that's been a podcast going strong for a long time now. You and yeah, Jesse. yeah, we
1: just um, we just yesterday recorded episode three hundred and three, which will release. Uh, I don't know when this will release, but this will release Friday from where we're sitting now. So uh, still going strong right now. We're kind of in the middle of this ongoing systematic theology series where we're just walking through different points of the the Westminster Confession, kind of broadly speaking, to talk about theology and sort of get back to. Um, we started out trying to talk about basics, but our, our show tends to be maybe maybe a little more on the technical level at times. Um, and, and depending on the topic, sometimes we can get get lost in the glorious weeds of theology. Um, and yeah, they, but are yeah. Yeah, they are well, glorious. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I recorded with my brother-in-law, Jesse, who's yeah. also probably my best friend in the world. And um, we just turn on the mics and chat, and it's very similar to the kinds of theological conversations we'd have. You know, at at uh, at the dinner table, or or when we're at the beach, or something like that. Um, yeah, so we just try to chat about theology, and and make application is really important to us. We try to make sure that theology is practical. I mean, theology is always practical, but really try to like make sure that this theology we're talking about can make
0: sense and make something happen in the life of the people who are listening to us. Well. If- if anyone listening has not subscribed to Reform Brotherhood, you got to do it. You got to join the Mary Telegram, too. This is a yes. lively bunch. It's a great bunch. And uh, immediately when you join, declare that you're a theonomist. That is the, that is the <laughs> first thing to do, right? No. <laughs> but no, I seriously, you, it's, it's the real deal. I love the way that you guys work through systematically a lot of these doctrines and how in-depth it is. It's been helpful for me. And, you know, Justin, like he, you know, normal people binge Netflix. He binges podcasts. (laughs) I mean, like the guy's a a machine and uh, you're definitely one of the podcasts he loves to binge. And uh, again, this is a, it's it's really great to get some time with you. Um, One of the things that uh, I've loved is you have great interaction in like the Telegram and also like in uh, you and Jesse, I think do a good job of, dealing with a lot of relevant issues, but in a very uh, thorough way. So some of the, your answers, some of the ways that you talk about things on your podcast, you take whole episodes, sometimes multiple episodes to kind of get everything right. And I appreciate that thoroughness. And the, one of the big things I wanted to to chat with you is because of some of your work on the uh, eternal functional subordination controversy <laughs> that uh, that that millions of Christians everywhere are <laughs> yeah. enraptured in. But uh, this was something that I first got attuned to in seminary around 2016 or something like that. When people were talking about some, some people at RTS Orlando were actually involved in that saying like, Hey, you know, there's this doctrine coming out. That's that people are articulating to defend complementarianism or traditional Bible gender roles. And it sort of started as like a practical concern. People were saying we get that when we talk about, you know, a wife submitting to her husband, people are going to think that means she's inferior. And so we're trying to find a way to show that that's not the case. And they use the Trinity saying that the son submits to the father and he's still equal to the father. And that led to this whole controversy that just exploded. So yeah. uh, what, maybe just starting off, what kind of got you interested in this controversy? What, what is it? What, what's going on? And what got you interested in delving into it. Sure. So I became
1: aware of this teaching, um, that really, it really came to the forefront in the summer of 2016, but it's actually been around for about 30 years. Um, okay. the most prominent place you find it in is, uh, in Wayne Grudem's first edition of his systematic theology, um, which he teaches prominently in there that, that the sun, um, uh, not according to his human nature, but the sun in his divine nature is eternally, uh, functionally subordinate to, um, the father, uh, ad intro, which means at, in the inside of the Trinity. So God in himself, apart from any consideration of the economy of redemption or creation, God had he done nothing else, uh, besides be God and, and never created the son would still be subordinate to the father in eternity past. And so this theology is taught in Wayne Groom Systematic theology. Um, there was also a pretty, um, a pretty influential book, um, Around the same time, probably called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which also taught this theology. Wayne Gruden was a, a co-author in there, um, along with John Piper and many other names that uh, your audience would probably recognize and, and have a lot of commendable things about their ministries and their, their theology that um, I'm sure all of us have profited from. So, in the summer of 2016, a pastor in Philadelphia named Liam Gallagher identified in, uh, it was actually in D.A. Carson's commentary on John, which is a, a super popular commentary for kind of Reformed Baptist, particular Baptist people. He, um, he, he taught this theology in there and specifically in how he handles the phrase begotten in John 3.16 and in you know, the first chapter of John, there's these, this phrase monogenes in Greek and the way that he handled that, um, Gallagher identified this issue of the eternal subordination of the son or eternal functional subordination of the son. So Liam publishes a couple articles on uh, Amy Bird, of all people's um, blog, when she was with Reformation uh, 21, and this controversy blew up. And so this is where it kind of became public knowledge. Um, I I really could have cared less at the time, to be honest with you. Um, I was passionate about the Trinity. You know, I, I'd been out of seminary for a few years. My, my seminary training was not pastoral in nature, it was academic in nature. So I did a lot of work on um, conciliar Trinitarianism and conciliar Christology. And even with that background, I I didn't fully understand what the issue was with this. I thought, you know, their logic seemed to make sense. I thought it was kind of a weird novel way to, to sort of deploy the doctrine of the Trinity. And I wasn't a big fan of kind of using a first order doctrine as a prop for like a fifth or sixth order doctrine of complementarianism. Right. Um, I'm a lot more... I'm a lot more energetic about complementarianism or, or I like to call it gender parity, um, than I I was at the time. Um, But even at the time I was like, I don't, I don't love the idea that we're just using one of the most bedrock doctrines of the Christian faith as a sort of a prop for this auxiliary doctrine that isn't a matter of the gospel. But as I started to read um, certain articles coming out, there was an article in the evangelical theological society uh, journal, um, by a scholar named Glenn Butner Jr. Um, I forget where he teaches, but he um, he wrote really the first article that I read where this clicked and it made sense. And the argument that Butner makes is that if it's true in eternity past that the father and the son have this relationship uh, where the son is subordinate, he volitionally, he voluntarily takes the backseat to the father in a sort of way of speaking, then that necessarily means that the father and the son have differing wills. And that really, for me, that's where it clicked. And that sort of set off this chain of events in my mind, as I'm studying this theology and digging into it, that this doesn't just present sort of a, an idiosyncratic or sort of an eccentric doctrine of the Trinity. It actually presents a doctrine of the Trinity that's alien to the the Christian tradition as a whole. That in in the conciliar period, the people who were making arguments that line up with um, with this theology were not the Orthodox Christians, like lowercase O Orthodox people like Athanasius and the Cappadocian Fathers and and those kinds of people. Augustine. It was the it was the heretics. It was Arius and his Arius's followers. Followers who were making arguments that the son was still somehow eternal and somehow divine in a sense, but was always subordinate to the father. The arguments being used by people like Wayne Grudem and Owen Strahan is kind of the biggest, loudest voice in sort of this phase of the controversy. Um, Bruce Ware is a big figure in this. The arguments they were making really are the same arguments that were being made to justify why it is that people like Arius could say that the son is, is God, but God in a different way than the father is. The son is divine, but divine in a different way than the father is. So as I dug into it, I just really realized um, this is not just a problematic doctrine. It's not just a uh, an error that's being taught. It's actually a heretical heresy position that's being taught. Um, And I think to be charitable and fair, I think Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware and Owen Strahan, I think that they're Christians that love the Lord. And I think that they are very confused about what they're teaching and what they're saying. Um, I'm not saying that they're heretics. I'm not condemning them to hell. I'm not saying anything like that. But I am saying that the theology they're teaching does not match up with uh, the teaching of the Christian church going back, I mean, to the very beginning. I think you can find in the Bible itself, in the New Testament itself, um, obviously we're, we're Protestants, we're Reformed Protestants, we want to around everything in the scripture. This theology of the Trinity, of the co-equalness, the, the, the utter sameness of the Father and the Son in respect to their status as God, this is, a, this is the biblical doctrine. So to depart from that in a sense and say that um, the Son is, is God, but in a different sense or in a different way in reference to the Father um, really is a, a pretty
0: big deal. That's a good summary of it. I mean, it, it, yeah, I, I actually had uh, Liam Gallagher as, as a professor when I went down. He, he made mention of this, and he had a yeah. striking statement where he was like, "You know, uh, I think he was, he was trying to he was being a little hyperbolic, but it was something like, you know, a, a Catholic disagrees with us on the nature of justification, but like Wayne Grudem disagrees on who God is.
1: yeah
0: yeah <laughs> and it was a pretty strong statement. Yeah, at the and time. It's- It is a strong statement.
1: And, and in one sense, um, I might quibble with that a little bit that a a Roman Catholic who disagrees with us on the nature of justification also is disagreeing with us on who God is because we have, we have a God who justifies and justifies in a particular way. And, and I, I think the force of that statement is well taken. Um, but you're right. The, these, um, these, Predominantly Baptist scholars, although there are a few people who would identify themselves in the, the Presbyterian stream of thinking, um, predominantly evangelical Baptist scholars, they don't quite realize that the vision the vision of God that they are presenting, this this theology proper is the sort of technical term for this part of theology that we're, we're talking about. The theology proper that they put forward is not just a slight deviation or a slight change from what the church predominantly has taught, although they believe this is what the church predominantly has taught. And they've done some really poor uh, historical theology to try to back that up. This is a very significant departure from the, the history of Christian doctrine in terms of who God is and how the Trinity works and how, how the persons of the Trinity relate to each other. Um, it's actually much more, well, we might get into some of this, but it's much more influenced by sort of late postmodern ideas of personhood and what personality is than it, than it is by serious historical theological considerations from from the testimony of the church for the
0: last 2000 years or from from the new testament witness itself so to boil it down i mean and i'm just trying to like make it simple in my own head the eternal functional subordination issue is that every christian agrees that jesus with regard to his incarnate you know human nature submitted to the father uh, in his earthly uh, ministry. The sure. issue is whether he submitted as the eternal Son from all eternity. If that, right. if, if he is if there's never been a time where he has not submitted to the Father, right? And yeah, yeah. He, right. He and he really the problem is that's two wills. That's that. That makes two wills. And even it would be impossible for God to submit right. to anyone, right? Yeah. And so Jesus would not be the one true God if he had to. Simulator, yeah. The sun.
1: And some of this, some of the problem where this gets really sort of complicated and technical, and I'll try not to get too, too lost in the weeds is when we talk about God, um, we're talking about something that is utterly different than us. So, so right. everything in creation is created. Right. So there's a point Mm -hmm. of contact between anything in creation and any other thing in creation. So I'm fundamentally more like the, the wood that is in my desk than I am like God himself. Like there's more, I share more in common with the metal in this microphone stand in front of me Mm -hmm. than I do with God, but that doesn't mean there's no point of contact. And so to, to resolve that, what theologians have done is they talk about how we speak of God in, in a, um, in analogical sense. And what that means is what we say about God is true, but it's not, uh, it's not analytical. It's not specific. It's not, it's not a one-to-one correlation. So when I say that God is a father and I could be talking about God, the father, the person, or I could be talking about God kind of collectively as the whole Godhead is a father, the father of creation, the father redemption. I'm saying that, I mean something similar. There's a point of contact between when I say that God is a father. And when I say that I'm a father or that my, Mm -hmm. my father is a father, but I'm not, I'm not saying that everything it means for me to be a father. It means for God to be a father. Namely, I began to be, I, began to be a father at some point when my son was conceived and God never began to be a father. If we're talking about the father, God, the father, the first person, of the Trinity, he always was with his son. Mm. And so there never was a point or there never was to kind of use Arius's language in reverse. There never was when the father was not the father and there never was when the son was not the son because right. they are eternally the father and the son, they eternally relate to each other in that sense. And so one of the problems that happens in this controversy is these theologians because they're operating a lot of times without a good understanding of some of these kinds of c- these categories. I mean Wayne Grudem, he's a New Testament scholar, he's an exegete, he's not a systematic theologian. So I've never quite understood how it was that he came to be the author of one of the best-selling systematic theologies in history. But yeah. he's not he's not classically trained as a systematic theologian. So some mm. of these categories of analogical and and um, equivocal unequivocal some of these categories he he might not even be aware of of how they function
0: you're sounding and like so, thomas
1: uh-oh oh yeah, uh-oh. we don't want to go too far down that way we don't want to <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, right, right, right. But but I mean, that's a good point. Thomas Aquinas is this big hot button topic right now in the same circles. And a lot of the reasons I think they're trying to reject Thomas so much is because the insights from Thomas, which are not new to Thomas. There's no sense in which this part of what Thomas is teaching is unique or novel with Thomas. Um, This kind of insight is something that just blows up their whole theology because they're looking at this and they justify their theology to say that the son is eternally functionally subordinate, which Hmm. is just a weird statement. They're using that. They're saying that because they look at scripture and they see language that appears like the son in eternity past is subordinate. So like Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, well, if you unfold that package, we're talking about the father speaking to the son. And the father gives the son a task sure. or he gives the son a kingdom. And then the he son receives him. that. kingdom. Yeah, right. Yeah, he sends yeah. him. So they're looking at this language and they're saying, well, like, see, like a, a person who sends is clearly superior to the person who is sent. And we're saying, okay, well, but like we're, we're trying to glimpse into a timeless interaction, like an interaction that has no logical sequencing. We don't, we don't have any phrasing or wording or concept to explain that. So we have to recognize that what the Bible is doing is is accommodating itself to our limitations. So we're not looking at it and saying, this is exactly how it happened. We're saying, this says something true about how, about what God did in eternity past and who God is in eternity past. And that, that sort of like failure to recognize that analog, analogical language, that is driving a lot of this. And it's because a lot of these technical categories aren't in place. So so to put it, maybe to summarize the theology, just to sort of give a statement of the doctrine, the eternal functional subordinate uh, subordination, or sometimes it's called the eternal submission of the son or the eternal relations of authority and submission. It postulates, or it it puts forward this idea that in eternity past, irrespective of, um, anything that the Godhead would have done or did do that in the very essence of the relations between the father and the son, the, the son voluntarily submits himself to the will of the father. Now, even just the way that I phrase that, I have to already have two wills in place. So so they don't quite sure. seem to see that. Yeah. Uh, and the Holy Spirit often gets lost in this whole mix. Um, most of the time, if pressed, the Holy Spirit is then seen as submissive or subordinate to the Father and the Son. Sure. Um, so this theology is is taking what we call economic realities or add extra realities. That is the things that we see God doing, the persons of the Trinity doing oriented outside of the Trinity, it's taking those relationships and it's pushing them backwards into eternity past And so we it, they say, well the son in the economy of redemption, the son in the, the Saving act is sent by the father and submits to the father he it's his food to do the father's will, you know the father is greater than I all of this language that we look at, that language, Cannot and must not be pushed backwards into the inner life of the Trinity, but that's exactly what this theology Hmm. argues needs to happen. Is they confuse this element and instead of saying, "Right, this is a this is a passage about the mission of the Redeemer." Even before the incarnation, we still have language about the redeemer being sent and there's there's language that implies submission, but it's always in reference to the work of the incarnate God, man. So even though the language is being said and is portraying scenes that happen prior to the incarnation, it's still in reference to the ministry of the incarnate God, man. So it's got to always be spoken of in light of that ministry, in light of the incarnation, even though it may not
0: be sort of located in the incarnation itself. You can't separate it. Like, so basically if somebody says, you know, Hey, look, you guys aren't, uh, you letting your creeds dictate your doctrine, whatever. Clearly there's a sending before the incarnation. So there's a submission before it. And you're, you're saying like, well, okay, if you want to cash that out of the way, you're also inferring a temporal sequence of right. <laughs> a suggestion and a volunteering. Yeah. And then even at that point, there's two wills in God. So you're trying to make that text do too much and I love the point that you made, where it's like, what, maybe I'll back up. Something that's been fascinating hearing you talk about this is, is, and even just following this kind of debate over the years, is that it really began. To me, it seems like it began with a sociological kind of concern. Yeah, uh, complementarianism doesn't sell. Male-only priests or uh, uh, clergy or whatever doesn't doesn't sell. And so there's there's there people are trying to find a theological apologetic, and they find one maybe sloppily in the Trinity. When I really think, I mean, I think the economic Trinity, I think you could still, I don't even know why you have to go that far, but that was the idea. And then what happens is people go, we've got this great Trinitarian defense for why submission does not equal ontological inferiority or something like that. And then if anyone goes, well, technically there's this eye roll. It's like, come on, we're getting beaten up by the feminists and you're gonna gonna take us to task on this fine little point And by the way, it's a Catholic point, you know, (laughs) by the way, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing in Thomism into all this stuff. And it's sort of this thing where there's this political end, because what I saw was, um, you had the EFS people saying, this is a defense of, you know, complementarianism. Then you had people who are complementarian or, or gender, you know, traditional, or, uh, however you, you phrased it. Parody. I call it gender parody, Right. Who hold to a gender parody saying, Guys, I don't think we should be saying this. And then the people who are holding EFS are going, Well, why are you giving the egalitarians ammo against us? Yeah. And then people who are egalitarians are going, see, you guys are heretic, patriarchal, terrible people. Right. And it, there's there's all these political angles to it that make it especially heated. And uh, but then the way that you're phrasing it, it's like, wow, wait a minute. Actually, this is how bad things happen when we don't, when we aren't careful when we should be. In a weird yeah. way, it's like we're taking a cue from the culture and the culture battle, and we're modifying our theology for yeah. it, which is actually what most conservative evangelicals criticize liberal Protestants for doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and in a lot of ways, the arguments um, as they unfold, um, people like Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware and and Owen Strahan, who's like the captain of the anti woke squad, um, they, <laughs> it they are like a actually team. <laughs> yeah, they they actually are. Um, they're making the same arguments as the progressives and the liberals. They're just doing it from the other, like the other perspective, the other party argument. So both, both parties are making arguments reasoning from the nature of the Godhead to how human relationships should play out. And so Matthew Barrett, who's a scholar at Midwestern um, Baptist Seminary, um, really, really top-notch theology proper doctrine guy, but he boils stuff down. He has a book called Simply Trinity, um, mm. and it's called The Unmanipulated Trinity. And so he has a chapter in there that basically demonstrates that what's really going on is that these these scholars and, and theologians and pastors who are advocating this, they've actually adopted uh, the social Trinity model. And so, so roughly speaking in the history of the church, there's two models of the Trinity. There's the, the substance metaphysics model, which is, um, the, the Orthodox model. This is the theology of the Nicene Creed is that there are these things called substances and these things called persons. And there's these relationships between substances and persons. And so God is one substance who exists in, in three persons. That's the substance metaphysic model, um, then there's this social trinity model, which is not entirely new, but it, it really takes shape in in the sort of fifties, sixties, and seventies. Right. And the early part of that, that era, I mean, it has some antecedents in the, the 19th century, but really the 20th century is where it takes off. And this model basically says, well, the, the persons of the Trinity are persons just like the three of us, right? There's three guys on this, this video conference here. And each of us are, are, we're all the same thing. We're all humans. We all have the same characteristics. We all, we all are basically the same at, at our, you know, our foundational level. And we become one in now this activity of making, A podcast. So Mm. we have this shared purpose now. So in in this this media and this venue, we are one. We're unified. So they take that and they say, that's the way that God is one, but that unity is so much deeper than any unity a person, you know, three humans could have because it's, it's perfect and complete. It's, it's formed in perfect love, but it's still these three separate persons. So Mm. what's happened now is that whether they realize it or know it or not, the, the EFS advocates, um, and now people like James White are starting, we're starting to see this has been occurring in the theology of James White for some time now. Um, they're starting to argue this theology where now what we have is we have the father and the son are persons basically just like you and me. And so the son voluntarily submits his will to the fathers in this sort of perfect society that is called the Trinity. And then the spirit so also further submits himself to the father and the son together. Well, the liberals do the same thing. They just have a difference of opinions on what that's. Uh, unity looks like. So they would look at it and say, well, the unity is a a unity of equal, of utter equality. The father and the son are basically interchangeable with each other in reference to the Godhead. And therefore, male and female should be basically interchangeable to each other in the functioning society. Well, the EFS advocates and Doug Wilson who I don't know if your if your audience knows Doug Wilson or is a fan of Doug Wilson but Doug Wilson actually does this almost explicitly in, in most cases where he's he's taking the way that the godhead is and he's now kind of cutting and pasting that on top of human relationships and where this gets you know where this gets I think into the practical elements of how we actually live our lives is when we start to talk about um we start to talk about men and women as though they have differing natures of some sort. And although the EFS advocates would say that's precisely what they're not doing, what they are actually doing if you if you unpack their theology is they're setting up this scenario where a man is authority sort of in in essence and a woman is submission sort of in essence and so you do have some I don't think that Doug Wilson goes this far but you do have some people that will say all men are authorities over all women individually mm. so my wife would be a, would need to be submissive to you and your mother would need to be submissive to me because I'm a man and and she's a woman and so this can play out in really dangerous ways so there are some some movements on the extreme fringes of pa- the patriarchy movement this by no means describes all of patriarchy most patriarchalists um, are kind of just sort of buff macho complementarians they wouldn't love that i say that but that's that's what they end up being is they're they're maybe a little more aggressive and they're a little bit more like uh, i'm a rough, rough rough guy kind of a kind of it's a actually uh-
0: me and Justin, our dodgeball team is called the Buff Macho <laughs> The Buff camp. Macho so, That yeah, would be a pretty have, cool. That would be a good band
1: name, yeah. Yeah,
0: no, we, yeah, it's true. It's true. We really should places. We should think about that.
1: Well, what happens in some of these fringe movements that actually are on the outside of that, they take this logic and they now, now what we have is instead of um the relationship between a man and his wife being a voluntary act of submission, right? My wife was not, did not need to be submissive to me before she married me. There's nothing in nature that requires a particular man and a particular woman to be in a relationship of submission. But once we entered into this covenant together, my wife agreed to honor me and to love me and and to be submissive to me the way the Bible describes. And I, I made agreements to do certain things and to be certain ways towards her. That's a voluntary arrangement. Well, if what we're saying is that the son who could not ever be not voluntary, mm. could not be submissive, could be not, right. not submissive. Otherwise, what, what does it even mean for the son not to be obedient to the father in this theology? Could the, could the son have decided to disobey the father? Sure. Well, that makes no sense if we're talking about God. Right. Well, now this turns into now things. What you see is we're like, there's discussion about like, how do you discipline your wife? Do you, do you spank her like she's a child? <laughs> I mean, I'm seriously, like there are yeah. manuals out there about how to discipline your wife when she when she disobeys you. And, yeah. and it turns into this very quickly because this theology, whether it's saying so explicitly or not, whether it's intending to or not, it does create this hierarchy of being, this hierarchy of essence. Such that, so I have a dog. I have a little West Highland Terrier. She doesn't listen to me most of the time. She just is not an obedient dog. Mostly my fault because I didn't train her. But <laughs> my dog is subject, subject to me because she's a dog, right? There's a, there's an hierarchy of being. There's an essential subjection to me that my dog has such that, it, and I would never do this. I love my dog. So I even feel a little guilty saying this. If I decided that I didn't want my dog to be alive, I can legitimately take her to the vet and just have her put down. Right? Or I could mm. take her, and you know, could go old yeller on her, take her out back and shoot her. Like <laughs> nobody's going to send me to nobody's going to send me to jail for that. Yeah, right? I would never do that. I love my dog. I would probably run yeah. into traffic for my dog, which is probably not the healthiest thing. But <laughs> if I did that with my wife, right, or my son, yeah, if my son was crying and I couldn't get him to stop, and I just put him out in the hallway until he stopped, like the police would come and take me away because right. there's not that same essence hierarchy. In place between two human beings. And, and that goes for any human being. If I just decide to kill a homeless person, I'm still going to, I should still go to jail. Now our our justice in our society is not perfect. But sure. in a perfectly just society, if I just decide to kill a homeless person for fun, I'm going to jail and I should go to jail. Right. We all recognize that our natures are, are on the same level. And so any submission in human relationships comes in the form of a subordinate covenant right? I'm subordinate to my boss, not because my boss is somehow more human than I am, because I've entered into this voluntary contract with my employer to obey a certain person with certain stipulations. Well, if we project that kind of relationship back into the Godhead, we run into all these problems. But if we take what we believe is this relationship in the Godhead, we start there. Now human relationships become a matter of nature. Because as much as the EFS advocates want to say, we do not postulate a natural subordination of the son. There is no other possible way that the son could be subordinate. This idea of a voluntary submission that has no option of being a other way. So they would say the son could not help but submit to the father because that's what good sons do. Well, now what you've done is you've made it, it's no longer a contingent decision. It's fundamental to who the sun is. So now you've pushed it back into the realm of nature. He, he could he have, done right. he right. have done otherwise. Right. He couldn't have done otherwise is what they'll right. say. He couldn't have done otherwise. Well, that's no longer voluntary. If there's no, if there's no contrary option, even conceivable, even hypothetically, right. then you've pushed this into the realm of nature's. So now you're taking what is a natural submission in a natural subjection between the father and the son. Now you're dragging and dropping that into human relationships. And now you have women naturally subject to men and children naturally subject to women and men. So it's, it, it really becomes this, Problem that doesn't necessarily lead to abusive situations, but it certainly lends itself to abusive situations and has concretely resulted in abusive situations. So this theology is eminently practical, even beyond understanding the the technicality of it and recognizing that one one view is the Orthodox Christian position and one is closer to Jehovah's Witness theology, Um, Hmm. even beyond recognizing that. This has real world practical implications for how we treat people, especially as men, especially how we treat our wives. And I think that's that's the piece that also seems to get missed because- People like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem and Owen Strahan, they're nice dudes, right? I'm sure that they treat their wives in lovely ways. I'm sure they love their wives. I'm sure they take great care of them. I'm sure they love their kids and take great care of them. But that still is a reality that results from this theology is that it creates this hierarchy of being within humans, which is ironically, precisely the opposite of what they were trying to do when they formulated this theology.
0: Okay. So you mentioned Doug Wilson, that's the, he's the pastor in Manhattan. Right, he writes for the Gospel Coalition. (laughs) That's that guy. I think you're thinking of Tim Keller. Yeah, yeah, oh, right, right, right. Right. Yeah, very different people. I think the common rebuttal is uh, you're adopting Aristotelian metaphysics. You're taking basically a pagan model of reality, and you're using that as the grid to which you understand the Bible. So you take a pagan vision of personhood, or even a Roman Catholic version of personhood, and that's what you use to establish it. But what it sounds like you're saying is, well, look, nobody can just, you know, not have some kind of yeah. framework where they view reality. Um, if you don't adopt sort of the classical theistic, it's not even Thomas, it's it's not even Thomism. It's just the classic theism view of right. how you inter- how you make connections between words. You know, uh, you're going to adopt another one. And it seems like you're saying we're adopting sort of a, a postmodern yeah. vision of personhood and relations. It's common to say, well, Tony, we're just reading the Bible and you're, you're just enslaved to these creeds and confessions. Um, well, what would you say to that? If someone's saying like, look, I thought we were, we're Protestants, right? I mean, wasn't there a great confession of the Catholic church and we protested because it was about the Bible. Yeah. I mean, what would you well, say to first,
1: that? The first thing I would say is that that's, that's not true. <laughs> uh, the 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 most comprehensive uh, sort of confessional document or or um, ecumenical document coming out of the Roman Catholic Church was a response to the Protestant Reformation and the Council of Trent. But mm-hmm. apart from that, I mean I I so I think it's a valid concern and it's something that as as confessional Christians we should be aware of and we should be able to speak to and we should understand that it is potentially a blind spot for us. There are a lot of people who um could probably quote you the the chapter and verse of the Westminster Confession that excludes, you know EFS or or this, that or the other thing, um, but probably couldn't go back and show you where that is in the Bible. Hmm. Um, so I think that's a valid um, concern, and it's something that as confessional people, we should be aware of, and we should know that it is a potential gap in our armor that we should we should make sure to shore up. but the the deeper question, I think, is, is about how we understand what the the world of the New Testament authors are, hmm. right? So the the Bible didn't just like drop out of the sky, right? These are these are men who were moved by the Holy Spirit and and spoke uh, to quote Peter who moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke what the words were that God had given them. But that d- they were still words that God had given them. It wasn't as though they they went into some ecstatic trance and sure. s- spoke meaningless languages that somehow we understand to be the Bible, right? That's, that's the Joseph Smith model, right? That's the Mormon model where he finds these golden plates in the ground. He doesn't even know what they say. He goes into this trance and he translates them or, or the Muslim model where Muhammad is, he's illiterate. He doesn't know how to read or write, but somehow he receives this revelation and communicates it uh, in writing. So when you read the Bible, if you read, I, and you don't even have to read that carefully um if you read slowly and you read with a, a little bit of an attention to detail what you find is that there is a philosophical world that the New Te- particularly the New Testament, the Old Testament also has a philosophical world that it's being written into, but it's a different, it's a different context, right? In the New Testament, we see Paul particularly, but we see other gospel, other New Testament writers, the other epistle writers <laughs> utilizing categories of Greek metaphysics, right? Paul particularly uses categories that are coming a lot of times out of Stoic philosophy, when he talks about the principal elements or the the powers of the air that's that's language that is sort of a fusion in some ways of some old testament categories and then also some some stoic categories we see in peter he talks about how we become partakers of the divine nature right and so there's this language of natures um, or essences that is throughout the new testament and this author uh, author of Hebrews, who I like to call not Paul, um, he <laughs> he says um, that the son is the express imprint of the Father's hypostasis, which is a specific term that was picked up by um, people like Athanasius in the the fourth century to use it to explain how it is that God is three. And and also one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we talk about these terms, we're not just pulling them out of thin air. It's not like we we read, you know, we're not like some kind of weird hybrid dispensationalist who reads the Bible in one hand and like Plato's Republic in another, or the allegory of the cave in another. What we're doing is we're recognizing that the New Testament authors to various degrees, right? Paul was more educated than Peter. Paul probably had more Greek influences in education than Peter. Um, But we're recognizing that even within the New Testament, there are categories in place that are dependent on Greek metaphysics, because they they grew up in a context where Greek metaphysics was in the air they breathed. Um, and we shouldn't try to minimize that. So what, what actually happens is if you have someone who's trying to say like, well, that's just Greek metaphysics, we got to get rid of that. They're actually stripping something out of the Bible that's present hmm. there. Um, that word had a meaning. Um, the word usia or, or hypostasis, these Greek words, these Greek terms, they had meanings to the people who used them. Well, we have to understand where those meanings come from. Do they come from thin air? Do they have no meaning apart from some divine special language? You know, like before they started finding all this pottery and, and, and like, um, like rolled up pieces of garbage in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. They thought that new Testament Greek was like this special kind of Greek that the Holy spirit invented to, to write the Bible. Well, that's not true. Like these are just, this is just the everyday language of everyday people. So when Peter says, we become partakers of the divine essence or the divine nature, he means something. And so the early church, Particularly, the Greek Church, which is where most of this theology development comes from, they are they are well versed in Greek metaphysics. Really, more influenced by Plato than by Aristotle. But but Aristotle comes in more when you get into later periods in in Aquinas and and um, Latin theology. But in Greek theology, Plato really was the one. Well, they took that that language and they went, well, yeah, we know what this word means. We understand what, what nature means. We understand what hypostasis means. Plato's been writing about this for 150 years, 200 years. But what they did, and this is the piece that I think a lot of people miss if they don't do good historical theology, they said, but Plato must mean something a little bit different than what Peter means. Because what Plato means when he says God is he's talking about this impersonal, abstract one thing out there that is impersonal and doesn't have doesn't have any sort of connection with his creation it's not even a his it's an it it's some sort of impersonal entity out there impersonal force so he must mean something different and so the linguistic development of how the church uses these terms is actually a really interesting study, and it took several hundred years for the church to figure out how are we best going to deploy these terms, not to create some artificial framework on top of what the Bible says, but to clearly articulate what the Bible says. And here's an, here's an example, because I think when you talk about it that way, people are like, "Well, that seems like maybe it's a little bit too academic." But every Sunday, we sit in the pews if, if we're fulfilling our obligations to be present among God's people on the Lord's day, we sit in the pews and we listen to a man tell us what the Bible means. We, we sit there every Sunday yeah, and we right, listen to right. a man explain to us in the language that we're familiar with, in the common language of the tongue, what it is that the Bible means. Well, this is really no different. When Athanasius preached to his congregation and he explained that when Peter means we become partakers of the divine essence, that it means we're united to God in a special way because of who Christ is and what he did and how he took on our nature so that we might become in some sense united to his nature, his divine nature. Well, that's just a pastor explaining in the the language of his day to his people, what that passage in Peter means, or when, Cyril of Alexandria preaches to his congregation and says, what it means here when it says that the son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature is that he is identical with the father in essence, that everything it means to be God, the way the father is, so also the son is God in the exact same way. Well, when he explains that, he's not he's not imposing Greek metaphysics. He's just explaining what the author of Hebrews means to people in his congregation in the language that they use. We're separated from that function by several hundred years, right? A thousand years. That doesn't mean it's really all that different in principle than when your pastor says, well, you know, here where, where it says uh, in, in Hebrews 10, 25, that we spur one another or ten twenty four we spur one another on to good works. Well, that word spur there is actually to say it was a sharp stick they used to poke cattle. So he, we're saying like we should prod each other, unto good works. That's what this is saying. It's not a comfortable thing. We're not just encouraging. We're actually like spurring each other on, like you spur a horse on, like a cowboy spurs a horse to get him running. Well, that's just that we're not imposing cowboy philosophy on top of the Bible. We're just explaining what the Bible means. And everybody has to explain what the Bible means. And the Bible commands us to explain what the Bible means. If, if all it was, I mean, um, the Muslim model of pre quote unquote preaching is actually recitation. Right? So, so when, when Muslims pray, they're not praying the way we think about praying. They're not talking to Allah. They're reciting passages out of the, out of Quran. That's a recitation. That's not the Christian model. The Christian model in the Bible commands us to explain to the people what it is that God has to say in his word. So that's all we're talking about with the creeds and confessions. The Nicene Creed was the summary teaching of the 318 bishops who assembled to interpret the Bible at Nicaea in 325. So it's it's the summary teaching, the summary of those 318 pastors who all had individual congregations who were in the midst of a controversy trying to explain what it is that's going on in the New Testament, how it is that the son is God and man. That was just the pastoral teaching of the day. So I think people like when Grudem, when they're like, oh, you're just imposing Greek philosophy, they're actually totally ignorant of the historical reality of what was going on in in that time period.
0: So is this saying that, because um, the New Testament authors, the apostles spoke in the metaphysical framework of their time. Is that an affirmation that that metaphysical framework is in fact true? Is that like an all truth is God's truth. Like this is actually how we should view person. Yeah, I mean, in essence? I,
1: I think, I think um, the church's statement on the matter, which, um, Athanasius actually, took all the bishops at a certain point in 367. He called all the bishops in his region. He locked them all in a room and said, we're going to stay in this room until we figure out what we mean when we say hypostasis and what we mean when we say, usia." like nobody's leaving until we come out of here with an agreement. And they actually came out of there using language differently than Athanasius would have. So it, it kind of lends itself to understanding of like, this wasn't just one guy imposing his will. Like this was a conversation the church was having. They don't use the language in the exact same way that that Plato did or more accurately origin and origin was was sort of using neoplatonic philosophy. So it's not the case that we have to say like Plato in total, like everything Plato says is this, is just the truth because Peter uses the same phrasing or the same word or Paul uses a similar concept. But what it is saying is I think exactly that is that Plato in a certain sense was a keen observer of the way things work. And the way that that reality is structured for whatever reason, um, not in, an, not in like, a, like a charismatic inspiration sense, like he's, he's not scripture, but for whatever reason, God had uniquely blessed him to have insight into the way the universe works, the way that reality on a, a sub-scientific level functions. There are lots of people in our own day, you know, someone like Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, we might say that we don't know why we don't exactly understand why. And he certainly did ungodly things with it at times, but he had this unique insight into the the fundamental structure of the universe. I don't know why he had that blessing and other people's didn't. Um, It wouldn't be the same to say then because we use some of his insights that were accepting his, his teaching wholesale and the church did the same thing with this platonic philosophy. They recognized that Plato had gotten a lot of things, right? Um, some of them went so far as to say that like Plato was probably say it was probably saved. He had somehow interacted with the, the writings of Moses and had somehow come to Christian faith apart from the preaching of the gospel, which is obviously nonsense, but was he like
0: Baptist or <laughs> would he have been like Methodist or something? I don't,
1: I don't know. Probably not. I mean, <laughs> It's hard to tell, Um, but, but it is to say that Plato was right about a lot of things. And and we should be able to acknowledge that without having like a meltdown and having a freak fit about what that means for the Bible. It simply means that Plato was, as was the equivalent of a scientist of his day who got some things right and adopting Peter or Paul or the author of Hebrews, adopting insights that Plato came up with. That he observed the way the universe works. Adopting those insights doesn't mean Plato was right about everything, but it does mean that we have to take what he said seriously, and that in certain areas he must have been correct. If, if I
0: see, yeah, if
1: what I'm saying about what the author of Hebrews means when he says that the fa- the son is the exact imprint of the father's nature, if that means there is a such thing as a nature, and that's what determines the fundamental reality of a of a given thing is is its nature. And that the son and the father are so identical that they they are the same nature. Well, if that's true, then that's the theology of the Nicene Creed. Well, it means that Plato must've gotten certain elements of that right. Right, Athanasius got certain elements of that right. And he did it by studying and understanding what Plato was saying about the nature of things. Um, Or Aquinas, like Aristotle got certain things right and Aquinas adopted certain Aristotelian categories and he got, you know, Aristotle got those things right. And Aquinas got those things right when he adopted those categories. Aristotle also got lots of things wrong and Aquinas adopted a lot of those categories that were wrong. So did Athena. I mean, we all do that. And it's, I guess my point too is it's, that's not that strange of a thing, sure. right? If, um, if, uh, some secular historian uncovers some historical fact. That, that we appropriate because it makes sense of the Bible, makes sense of, of how the Bible seems to present reality. And so we appropriate that historical archaeological fact that some secular historian has identified. That, we don't have anything to be nervous about with that, I think, it is, is what's strange about a lot of these guys is they, they want to, seems like they have this anxiety about anything outside of the Bible somehow being true. Well, the the Christian church, the Reformed, the Presbyterian church, the Dutch Reformed, the Baptists, nobody ever taught that the Bible is the only place that says something true. Sure. And in fact, all of the historic Reformed confessions say that there's actually two sources of truth. There's, There's the book of nature which is how the Belgic Confession, or I think it's the Heidelberg Catechism, but one of the three forms of unity phrases it. There's the book of nature in which God reveals himself through what he has made. And then there's the book of the Bible where God reveals himself in this special direct way. So if we, if what we believe about God revealing himself through nature, which is just what Romans 1 says, is true, then we shouldn't be surprised at certain certain generalized things about how who God is and how God exists are accessible to people who are not necessarily Christians. That's all we're saying about Plato is that he was tapped into general revelation and natural revelation somehow, for some reason in a way that the average person is not and was not. And he had these insights that the church then appropriated. And then this is the key part in light of what the scripture teaches modified and adapted to better suit itself to biblical truth. That's what happened in the fourth and fifth century, was the truth that Aristotle had in some way stumbled upon and Plato had stumbled upon, the church recognized what was right and modified it and adapted it to be suitable to to biblical revelation, more suitable to biblical revelation. And so the, the New Testament authors are using the language of the day, which is influenced and shaped by the philosophy of the day. And so when they're, when they're trying to get to a concept of what it means for the father and the son to somehow be the same God and this in the same sense, they reach for the word substance or they reach for the word hypostasis in Hebrews, because that's the word that's accessible. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like if we're trying to explain, if I'm trying to explain, um, uh, somebody is having a really terrible day, and and everything is going wrong, uh, and and they just think everything is falling apart. And I say, man, it's like the, They're they're like Chicken Little, and they're saying the sky is falling. <laughs> well, there's a whole linguistic background right. to to that story. A lot of your a lot of your listeners probably don't have any idea. I've never actually read Chicken Little. I've never read that story, but they still probably understand what I mean when I say, man, like the sky is falling. Um, Or if I say, um, it's raining cats and dogs. Well, that probably, I don't know where that comes from. That probably traces back to some old fairy tale or some old nursery rhyme somewhere that none of us have ever read, but we understand the linguistic framework that that comes out of. And I think the New Testament authors are doing the same thing. So it's not a wholesale adoption of of Plato's metaphysics. What it is, is a recognition that Plato's insights had worked themselves into the culture and language that God chose to use when he decided when to send Christ and when to, when to uh, inspire the new Testament. Right. One of the things people will latch onto, and when you read this a lot in sort of the beginning of a church history book, a lot of times it's really common is the latch onto that phrase. I think it's in the beginning of Galatians where it talks about Christ came in the fullness of time. Mm. And what a lot of people will say is what that means, the fullness of time is probably first century you know, uh, Israel because Greek was such a universal language. So, so he came in a time where there was a language that basically the whole populated world, as far as anyone from Israel could conceptually get to on foot, everyone spoke the same language. You know, there was elements of like the Pax Romana where, where there were roads. So missionaries could go out and they could be relatively safe as they traveled. All of these things are are things people will point to when they say that Christ came in the fullness of time. There was a prepared time when Christ came and all of these historical and linguistic and philosophical things tie into that prepared time. Well, the philosophy of Plato and its dominance in greek culture and its influence on the greek language that's part of the fullness of time too hmm. so god god i don't want to say waited because it's not like god was like sitting there watching right, his right. watch but god chose that particular time and place I think it's reasonable to say he chose that time and place for the revelation of the New Testament, the the person of Christ to come, and then the subsequent reflection on that reality and the the inscripturation of the revelation of God, because the linguistic categories and the philosophic categories that became substance metaphysics, they were present. So there was actually language now that God had, had providentially brought into place to describe what we're talking about. Now, I'm not I'm not an absolutist in this. I, I think, I don't know what it might look like. I can't conceptualize anything. There are better philosophers than I, who might be able to come up with something, but I'm not saying there's never going to be a time where we don't have a better link, a better linguistic framework that can describe, describe these realities in a better fashion. I don't think we will just because it's been 2000 years. And every time we try, we just kind of like fall off the bed and hit our head. But, um, it's not impossible that there might be some better philosophical framework that comes down the pipe in a hundred years that better explains the mystery of the Trinity than what we have now. So I'm not an absolutist, but I think we can't deny the fact that God chose to send the new Testament. He chose to inspire the new Testament into the Greek culture where Plato was such a force. Um, it makes sense to me that he did that because that's the language that best describes what he was trying to communicate. He could have picked any other language in any other time. He could have had a divinely inspired, a divinely inspired brand new created language that just floated out of heaven and he didn't do that. He used the Greek language and all of its platonic and aristotelian baggage to describe himself and and how he exists and how the incarnation functions. And a lot of times these EFS guys or some of this stuff that's going on with James White and other areas of of theology proper
0: that that element of God's providence is totally ignored in these debates. Well, and I know we're kind of getting to the end of the time but I, when you say that you're like, when you take the word person, so maybe that's an example, you're like, you're either gonna adopt sort of a modern or postmodern vision of what a person is, or you're gonna take the church's traditional understanding of what a person is, which would be a utilization of maybe some Greek metaphysics, but also in light of scripture, it wouldn't be a pure, just right. one-to-one, what a, Greek, what a Greek philosopher says a person is, Christians say a person is, there'd, there'd be right. a difference. Um, so there's really only two alternatives, is, is, is that kind of what you're saying? And that, because um, w- what I want to avoid is saying that, like, the Bible itself, if all you had was the New Testament, you couldn't come up with a metaphysics of a person necessarily just from that text, right? You would have yeah. to import something at any yeah, point. I mean,
1: I, I, th- I think, honestly, I think if you read the New Testament carefully and if you read it with a little bit of de- attention to detail, if you were to try to construct a metaphysic entirely from the New Testament, you'd probably come up with something pretty close to what we have. If you look at the way the the Bible uses the key terms and how they describe the relations, you might have to invent some new words to explain, you know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. You might have to invent some new language to try to explain how those, all of those propositions can synthesize. The church just decided rather than inventing brand new words, we're just going to use the words we already have because they work just fine. Um, But that said... The The idea of person is a perfect example. So when we think of a person in our modern context, we're deeply influenced by sort of postmodern liberal concepts of what it means to be a person. Right. And this is particularly uh, important in like abortion debates right now in our country. Mm. What does it mean to be a person yeah. is is a a um, a grouping of cells that has no consciousness, is that a person? It, it, once it, once that grouping of cells develops a brain that can sense pain, is that a person when it develops a group of cells that, that functions like a heartbeat and pumps fluid around in a circulatory, is that a person? So all of those are questions of personhood. But when you talk about personhood, you're usually thinking about something in terms of like a a set of rational faculties.
0: Uh,
1: I wouldn't think of like my dog as a person necessarily. It's more of a person than like the keyboard on my desk that has no rational faculties, right? My dog has some rational faculties. It remembers where it left its toy. It remembers who's supposed to be here and barks at the people it's not supposed to be here, but it's, it's not a person in that sense that we would say we're a person in the early, the early church in this platonic philosophy and, and Aristotelian categories, that's totally different. So when you talk about a person, you're translating the word hypostasis. The, the can of beer on my desk and the keyboard on my desk and me, we're all hypostases. We're just individual instances of a particular kind of nature. That's what a hypostasis is. Mm. So all of these concepts of personhood and interrelationality and and reciproc, you know, reciprocity, all of these different categories that are so important in. Um, sort of psychological categories of personhood that are prominent in our time, that's not at all what the people who wrote the Nicene Creed were talking about. Right. That's not what Plato was talking about. That's not, so that therefore is not what the Greek language was talking about when it says hypostasis. So we have to be careful and that's exactly where we get this. That's that's where the social trinity model comes in. James White, I don't want to bag on him too much, but James White in his debate with Roger Perkins, he argues that the reason we should say and must say that the the um, each person of the Trinity has their own distinct self con- center of self-consciousness is because that's how the persons love each other. They're conscious of themselves and therefore conscious of each other, and that's how they love each other. And he says that's what the church has always said. Well, that's not what the church has always said. The church has always said that the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son, and that
0: has to do with the reasoning. And we, that's a whole totally different concept. I but he's importing listeners are- a modern vision yeah. of personhood into that. But like, Obviously, if they're people, they're going to – have to have centers of consciousness that love other. And that whole thing is in challenge of like, well, is that what person means in the Bible? Yeah, exactly. So
1: in the new Testament, we can either assume that they are using the word person or the concept of person in a way that nobody used the word concept of person for another several thousand years. um, Or we can assume that they're using the word hypostasis the way that everyone else in the area used hypostasis, which the word hypostasis, this was one of the clarifications they made in three sixty seven. the word hypostasis and and usia, or which is nature, they meant the same thing. They were roughly cinnamon, cin- okay. cinnamon's synonyms, Four. cinnamon buns, yeah, and, yeah. Cinnabons. And they, they referred to like the fundamental reality of a given thing. Yeah, hypostasis was a little more more like distinct, and usia was a little bit more broad. But they they referred to the the individual realities that were walking and talking and existing around. That got refined. Now hypostasis is the way that God is three and usia is the way that God is one. So usia refers to the essence of what God is and hypostasis refers to the individuality of the persons of the Trinity. So so we can either assume that the Bible and the people who are using this language are using it the way everyone else at the time was in their own modified way, or we can kind of take the James White approach and assume they're using it in a way that like didn't happen until like psychological literature in, in like 1960.
0: Um, I think the first option is a lot more realistic. So basically it's like, look, you're, you've got to, it, it's, um, let's say, let's adopt this new modern vision and see how it works. Well, if you plug it into the equation, the answer is you're like, well, wait a minute, you're going to have all these right. problems here. You change it yeah. up here, and maybe it kind of works for your arguments here, but you don't realize you've messed up this. And then the church tradition has been like, yeah, we knew that. That's why we said right. this instead of that. And exactly. that's that, man, that that gives me such an appreciation for church history and, and classic theism. I mean, I think there there is a little bit of a retrieval of that, I think, in Reformed evangelical circles of saying like, all the reformers, they didn't argue about this because they agreed with it, you know? And uh, man, and something that, as you've been talking about all this, I'm just like, you know, justification is really important, obviously. Sanctification is important. Talking about spiritual gifts and church politics, these are all important, but it's like thinking about who God actually is. You know, I don't know how much, I remember before going to seminary, I was like, I had not really thought about the being of God. And why yeah. the Trinity matters, you know? And uh, I think what you've done, and especially in, in the episodes you've done in your, in your podcast and the Reformed Brotherhood has really articulated, like th- there's a reason the church spent centuries really trying to get this right. Yeah. Because we're yeah, talking this about is, the central things.
1: This is maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but it's an overstatement for the purpose of illustrating something. Yeah. When I sit down and have a theological argument with a, uh, a, let's just say a Muslim. I'm not going to spend time arguing about end times, right? I'm not going to debate eschatology with them. I'm not going to debate the nature of revelation with them, although that might come up, but I'm not going to debate um, I'm not even going to debate the nature of justification and how one gets right with God. I'm not going to debate how we arrange the government of our different ecclesiastical bodies. I'm going to debate who God is and how God functions, right? I'm going to debate who Jesus Christ is and the fact that he is truly God and truly man, right? So those are first order doctrines. Yeah. And so I think a lot of times there is this response from these EFS advocates they are like, well, we we agree on so much, right? Like we got our, our eschatology is usually the same. Like we we, we really agree on justification and what what the Bible is. And I'm sitting here going, well, we yeah, have, but we have, we have a different vision of who God is. So we can talk about how the Bible functions all day, but you think a different God inspired that same bi- that Bible. So we can talk about inspiration, but we have to get to the more, more foundational element of who is God, who is Jesus Christ. Um, and that's, unfortunately, that's where we disagree with the EFS people. And that, I think that's where we have to frame the debate is that we have competing understandings and the vision of who God is. That's a first order doctrine that we have to figure out. We have to settle it. And just to maybe put a put a point on it, as we kind of wrap up, Jude tells us that there are many people who will be deceived, and that we should, if we can, we should pluck them from the fire. And I am not saying, one hundred percent, not saying Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, Owen Strahan, James White, Doug Wilson. I am not saying those people are not saved. I'm not saying that they're destined for hell. I have no idea. I don't know those things. However, our theology sometimes gives people a reason to be concerned. And, and the theology that these guys are teaching gives me a reason to be concerned. And so you better believe I'm going to be aggressive because you don't pluck someone from the fire in a gentle fashion. There's no way to do that. You rush in, you break the door down, you grab them by the collar and you drag them out. That's what we have to do with these guys is we have to say, there's, there's no room for a cordial, gentle discussion anymore. Right. You don't want the firefighter to knock politely on the door and ask if they can come in. You want them to chop the door down with the axe. You want him to toss you over your shoulder and you want them to drag you out of that fire to where it's safe. And that's where we're at with this EFS stuff. And and maybe people like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem, maybe we're never going to convince them. But I can drag other people out of the fire by pointing out that they're the ones starting the fire right? You're going to stand next to him in this theological debate. Well, you're going to get burned. And so I want to grab you by the scruff of your neck and I want to pull you away from the danger. That's what we're trying to do. That's why people like me are are sometimes maybe a little bit more vocal uh, Hmm. and a little bit more aggressive than you might hear us be on other things because this is so important. It's so important. If you get this stuff wrong, you could be be excluding yourself from Christ's kingdom because
0: you're worshiping a different Jesus. Um, And it's as simple as that. Well, I appreciate you saying those, uh, saying these things and being as articulate and, and clear. And I think, man, I mean, it, you know, I, all those guys you've mentioned I've benefited from in their ministry, but I think the acid test is, it's like, well, is this about man? Is this about, you know, celebrity culture? Is this about that? Or are you really yeah. thinking about like what actually is, 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 is worth thinking through? And it's, I mean, it's a challenge, it's a challenge for me personally to, to think through that. And, uh, man, I appreciate you you know spending time and, and talking through this uh lo- love the work that you're doing with foreign brotherhood and enjoy the, the the telegram and uh you know if you guys haven't subscribed to reform Brotherhood, you got to do that like i said earlier and uh tony uh, this was this was fantastic hopefully we can chat again this was great yeah yeah i'm happy to do it